Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, Episode 5. Today's topic, a one-year look back on COVID. Hey, everyone. This is Shannon. I am back at the hotel bar with my co-hosts, Lee and Ammon. How's it going? What's up, Shannon? Good to see you both. All right. Let's start with everyone's drink order and the session you just got out of. Ammon, you're first. So I'm going to order a Negroni today, and I'm not using the well liquor. (laughs) And the reason is because I just got out of a session called, Dude, Where's My Stimmy? Post-COVID Desire and the New Social Contract. Oh, interesting. Lee, what about you? Well, I'm going to stick with the huge today. I'm going to have a fireball and Diet Coke. I just got out of a session that was a really fascinating session. It was called For Your Page, TikTok's reordering of Kant's categories of understanding. The guy basically was arguing that, you know, quality and quantity and relation and modality are really important categories of the understanding, but it leaves out things like gardening, life hacks, Becky rants. So yeah, I was, I was persuaded. <laughs> Sounds good. What about you, Shan? So I think I will have my usual, a white wine spritzer, not to surprise everybody, because I just got out of a paper called Species, Feces, and the Look of the Other. What to do when your neighbor sneaks bags of dog poop in your garbage bin. You know, it's a common phenomenon now that we're in the age of COVID and we spend a lot of time just looking out our front windows. All, all the time. People sneaking poop yeah. into our, into oh, our bins. Yeah, my, my neighborhood's Facebook group has just gotten to be like the poop wars because of this. But it's a poop war. We're all home I mean, all the time. We've got nothing else to do. Hey, so since we're talking about COVID, it turns out that we're about at the one year mark of having Ugh. lived in, I know, I know having lived through a year in various stages of lockdown. I think between the three of us, I've been the most locked in, I think. Yeah, that's I've been probably on a, right. I've been on a pretty hard lockdown for the last year, but we've made it through the first year. And we thought that it'd be great to have an episode, a kind of retrospective look back at a year in a pandemic. This is our first clips episode. Sorry, that's supposed to be a funny joke, but it's not. I don't get it. I don't need retrospectives. It. Never mind. Cut it. We'll oh, cut it. Don't worry. <laughs> no, we're not going to cut it. We're going to make you live with that one. <laughs> no. So, so we solicited a bunch of our listeners to give us some observations about what they think is going on with COVID, what we did before that they can't believe that we did, what has changed in the interim, and what they hope we never get back to once this pandemic finally ends. And we got some interesting submissions. Yeah, I got a lot of people respond to those questions on my Facebook page, you know, and of course, a lot of them were things that we would expect. A lot of people are not looking forward to going back to work when they're sick. This is something that I think we all used to not take very seriously, which I hope in the future we all will take very seriously. And a lot of people are looking forward to going back to bars, to obviously hugging people, being in crowds of strangers, although I'm not sure that we'll do that either. But I do want to call out one particular person, our mutual friend, Emma, who answered uh, all three questions in exactly the same way. So what is something that you can't believe we did before COVID? What is something you can't wait to get back to doing? And what is something you hope we never get back to doing? She said, flying all the time, flying all the time, and flying all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, Flying some of the time for me, but but I still, I'm, I'm with her there. Yeah. I can't even imagine getting back onto an airplane. Just the this, thought of it gives me so much anxiety. This is the longest I've gone probably since I was a teenager without flying, which is wild. Yeah. 
used to be such a normal part of our lives. You know, I I keep thinking that I can't wait to just be able to go back to a bar or be in a crowd. But the truth is, and I, I wonder if this is also true of you guys, that even now when I'm watching TV, and we should talk at some point about the fact that TV has not been COVID. It's been normal life, you know, before yeah. times TV. But even when I'm watching TV, I find myself thinking like, oh, you're sitting too close. Yeah. I, I am really curious to see how long it will take me, if ever, to get back to feeling comfortable in a crowd. One of the submissions that we got was from an epidemiologist uh, named Colton. And it was kind of stark because I realized that some of these things like going back to crowds and going back to bars and even the thought of teaching to a large group of students that I don't know even if it will ever go back to the way that it was before. So I just want to read a little bit about what he wrote to us because I think it speaks directly to some of this. So this is what Colton said, again, an epidemiologist, and he speaks to what he can't believe what we did before COVID and what we should never go back to after. He writes, there's a lot of discontent with the way public health has handled COVID in general. People are watching their local health departments struggle in real time. While this may just look like a lack of experience as an outward face, it's really a failure of government investment. Public health experts have been hammering home a warning about looming pandemics for a long time. We knew COVID would happen, we just weren't sure when. And in reality, COVID is pretty damn mild compared to what we could have had and what we will have in the future. I worked on childhood vaccinations in Portland, Oregon for two years. As I was leaving, funding for their vaccination program was almost entirely cut. Just before COVID hit, Trump was trying to cut even more from the CDC. Health departments have been getting by on the absolute bare minimum, and that situation has been getting worse every year. So now when the spotlight is on them and they don't have the functional capacity to deal, it looks bad. But in reality, as I mentioned, public health is a high expertise field. Throwing a bunch of money at health departments now and saying, here, you have the money, now fix it, doesn't work. There's no way loads of last minute money can fix years of deprivation. Public health infrastructure has to be built up over time. And this is the case with most disasters. Agencies will receive a lot of money all at once to build new infrastructure. Then as the disaster subsides, that money is stripped from them and that infrastructure decays to the point of annihilation then the next disaster hits. The fact that social distancing in the general out and about grocery shopping public exposure sense and hand washing had to be taught during COVID was goddamn baffling. These are things that really we should have been doing already. Public health has preached about it, but until COVID, it was never taken seriously. COVID is not the only disease out there by any means. Believe me when I tell you, outbreaks are constantly happening. You just never hear about them because we get them handled. Even mask wearing now. There had not been scientific evidence that they work in public settings until COVID forced that research. So now that we know they at least do something, I see them staying as the new normal. There are a bunch of public health awareness facts about everyday interactions, but the environment of that would make you absolutely paranoid. Also know you should never go to work sick ever. Yeah, I just wanna say something about that masks are here to stay comment. And I actually hope that that is true. My partner's mother is in the infection prevention department of our local hospital system. And I didn't realize until she told me that the flu rates were so low last year, 
almost entirely due to the fact that most people were wearing masks. And since we know that the flu kills so many people just in normal years and before time years, we really should be wearing masks during flu season. But what would that look like? I mean, masks it would look like every- the last year. <laughs> but, but 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 that raises the question, right? I mean, would that be masks in bars and restaurants and movie theaters and classrooms and grocery stores? Would it be masks everywhere? When would we take them off? I think that if there were a kind of generic announcement, like it's flu season now, and everybody understood that what that meant is we should pay more attention to social distancing, to washing our hands, to wearing masks. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I don't think it would be the same as what we've just gone through. And mm-hmm. of course, there wouldn't be 100% cooperation. But even not in if, Utah, <laughs> not in Tennessee. <laughs> we're all in red states. So. There we go. Yeah. But I mean, even if a fraction more people practiced those kind of safe measures during a regular flu season, I mean, that's people's lives saved every year. It's actually really interesting because when I teach Confucian ethics before the pandemic, I would always give the example that in a lot of Asian countries, when somebody is sick, they wear the mask. Of course, now we understand that before it was sort of interpreted by a lot of Western people that that was that they didn't want to catch germs from others, but it was actually this altruistic move to care about others before oneself and that that's why you would wear a mask. And interestingly, The students were more open to that idea and my students in my classrooms before the pandemic. And now that mask wearing has become a political issue, they're like, well, 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 I don't really know if that's such a necessary kind of a move. It's one of the things that I hope we have some time to talk about today is this hardening along what we're calling political lines, right? And and even the statement mask wearing has become a political issue. I remember reading early on in the start of COVID Something about the fact that, you know, the United States was projected to be the the nation most equipped. This blows me away, right? In like 2018, there's a reputable study that claimed the United States was the most well-equipped society to deal with a pandemic. And I suspect that the people who published that study still all have their jobs. And part of the reason why I think they probably have their jobs is because I think we've sort of told ourselves this story that this extraordinary political situation that we were in, where we had an incompetent evil criminal president to cancel our last Republican listeners um, (laughs) was the reason why things went so badly. But I I actually am not convinced of that. I think we would have done better under a different president. But I think irrespective of of that, I think the United States was much less well-equipped than we thought, precisely because I worry that there were these ways in which any response to a pandemic was always destined you know, we say to become political, but I wonder if the reason why is because there were latent politics about care for others, as you guys are pointing out here, that have always been built into our political system, yeah. which have been really sharply exposed this last year. If it had been a different president and not Trump, that the same result would happen of this kind of division between the I think that part and the mask wearers? Yeah. Well, I think all of that is in no small part due to the fact that, as many people have noted, we are the only developed nation, I hate that phrase, but the only wealthy nation to have not figured out universal health care yet. And this has been a mounting problem for the last really 50 years that we've got to do something about healthcare. And I do think that a lot of what we saw as the kind of political polarization about simple public health measures has to do with 
people in the back of their minds or in the forward of their minds worrying about call me healthcare, which, you know, <laughs> can I just say, bring on the call me healthcare. <laughs> right. And also work protection because yeah. people go to yeah. work sick for a reason. Nobody goes to work sick because they want to go to work sick. They're terrified of the repercussions that can be as dramatic as losing your job. So of course, we can wag our fingers all we want at people going to work sick or going out and about sick, but until they are protected. Yeah. I mean, the whole conversation this year about essential workers has just made me sick I, to my stomach in a too. profound way. And the way in which we glide between talking about genuinely essential work and work done by people who we regard as inessential. So therefore, any work that they do is essential because they're expendable. And the way in which this has conditioned our inability to respond to COVID, I think the person who wrote in is absolutely right. These are structural conditions that we knew were in place and that we've done nothing to respond to, and which I think probably made the politics of COVID or the politicization of mask wearing necessary. Absolutely. And in fact, if you sort of pay attention to who counted as an essential worker, it was this constantly moving target. And so it was only when it was politically and economically expedient that somebody would be called an essential worker and thereby given some kind of, I guess, bare minimum respect or maybe some kind of job protection. But I mean, even undocumented workers were suddenly essential workers because somebody had to do it, but they had no protections before that and presumably will have none after. There was no protection for people in the gig economy doing Lyft and DoorDash and people who collect and deliver your groceries. And then suddenly there were arguments for them to become essential workers and so that they could have protections and get vaccines. And, you know, it's frustrating because it was never an ethical move to consider what constituted essential workers and what constituted protections for them, it was always what was expedient. And let's not forget that at the beginning of the pandemic, the designation essential worker was not so that those people could be given protections. It was so that they could go out despite the lockdown and yeah, do their work, you right. know, and and we're all going to stand out on our porches at 6 p.m. every afternoon and applaud them. Right. Uh, yeah. While we give whatever it was, one point two trillion dollars away to massive corporations. So we're actually assisting and protecting these totally inessential workers. Or, you know, this right. I always thought at the beginning of the pandemic that it was sort of tragically ironic that the people that we were calling essential were the people that became the kind of homo soccers. You know, it's, it's funny that you brought up this notion of homo soccer. In philosophy, there's this philosopher named Giorgio Agamben with whom this term has been very heavily associated. Yeah, let's uh, assume that I don't really know what that means, even though Lee's thrown it at me before and I just kind of <laughs> nodded. So sure. let's pretend that I don't really know what that means and educate sure. me. For the, of, for the benefit of our listeners, right? Agamben, and Shannon. <laughs> and Shannon. <laughs> Agamben has written a lot on biopolitics and sovereignty, but especially important as analysis and has turned to what he calls bare life, has been the figure of the homo soccer, which in Latin means the sacred person. Referring to the fact that in Roman culture, there would be people who would be designated homines sacri. And I apologize if my Latin declension is not right, but, you know, I've had my nice fancy Negroni and I'm ready with my dick declension. <laughs> um, that is to say, they've been designated sacred people 
oh, that sounds great, right? Well, no, that actually means that your life is no longer protected by the state and your life has therefore been reduced to what Ngambin calls bare life. I've thought a lot during this pandemic about the way in which these homo soccer's have been exposed, right? And we've all decided that they can be exposed. We've all decided that politically their lives have insufficient worth to merit basic protection. And so who would you put in that category? I mean, I'm thinking, obviously, people who are working in grocery stores or who are collecting groceries, people who are still doing the, the gig economy. Yeah. What other people would you put in that category? So here's here to me is oh, the Well, easiest. obviously, yeah. nurses and doctors. Well, this is interesting, right? Because here's to me is the test. And it's exactly on this question whether nurses and doctors qualify. I think nurses yeah, probably I, more I than doctors. Yeah. Okay. So if we said you were essential last year, where do you fall in the line to get the vaccine this year? If we said you were essential last year and we haven't prioritized you getting a vaccine this year, what that really means is we never cared about your life. Yeah. I also think it has to do, again, with respect, just basic human respect, and also job protection. Nurses yeah. and doctors are not going to lose their jobs. And so therefore they're essential workers, but they are also protected insofar as they're going to be able to, to continue. Whereas people like, for example, those who work in the gig economy and those who work in grocery stores won't necessarily have those sorts of protections. And so I think they are revealed as being the most expendable in this country. Yeah, I want to also say that just following up on Ammon's formulation there, teachers are, you know, yeah. everyone thought were essential workers last year. And I know it, this varies state to state, but in Tennessee, teachers were not up in the line for vaccines. If you're a teacher and you get a vaccine, it's because you're over 65 still? or, yeah, it's still the case. Wow. Um, well, I mean, I think that it might have, actually, I don't think it changed even in the last couple of weeks. So we're actually recording this basically the second week of March. And the current Biden plan is for everyone to be vaccined, vaccine, vaccinated, vaccinated, <laughs> vaccined. stop drinking, Every, everyone to be vaccinated by May. And part of his ability to declare that is because we just found out that there's now a third one shot Johnson and Johnson vaccine coming out. And so it does appear that the market is about to be flooded with vaccines. And I think most states, if they're not already there, almost to the point where they're not only vaccinating the elderly and the vulnerable, but are now moving to broader categories. But I will say that in Tennessee, up until, I mean, last week, so I got my first shot a week and a half ago. And when I went, it was still the case that only people who were elderly or uh, immunocompromised in some way or something like that could be vaccinated. So I want to follow up on this because we're now entering a stage and we're all preparing ourselves for within the coming months, our lives are going to radically change. We're going to be able to see people again. We're going to be able to gather in groups. We're going to be able to have parties of some size, dinners with friends, be able to hug some people. And we got another submission that we want to play because it really raises the question of what do we do with the relationships that have been damaged by this because of people's actions or failures to act? Hey guys, love the pod. I've really enjoyed listening to you guys and I'm really interested in the question that you're asking tonight. Um, I guess my main question, or at least something that I've been thinking about um, during this year is 
how to interact with or really even reestablish relationships with people who have during this year really defected from their responsibilities to sort of meet the basic level of social responsibility. You know, you watch on uh, Facebook and you see people who are traveling or participating in events, maskless or otherwise behaving irresponsibly. And my question is, you know, how do I uh, return to these friendships or even can I return to these friendships knowing uh, how these people have behaved? I think there's a related question and it's a surprising one because I think it's connected in a strange way, but that's if I do accept people like this and if I do realize that these people that I counted on as friends and now uh, find their behavior sort of morally uh, abhorrent, it's not clear to me that, that like if these are the people that aren't able to sort of participate in the kind of social contract and the social agreement to behave in a responsible way and to care for others, it's really shaken my faith in the idea that we can collectively address problems like global climate change or um, other kind of collective challenges, even universal health care or any kind of concern where we have to put the interests of others first. And these are my friends, or at least these were my friends. So perhaps you guys can talk a little bit about what the best course of action is in dealing with this situation. Thanks. What a great question. I've had this question myself. I don't know about you guys. But. I mean, and especially in the age of social media where people will just post gathering and traveling and they've been doing it for a year and you're thinking to yourself, why are you making it so public that you're an asshole? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that there are people who post the, that kind of content as a political statement. So people on the right who say, I'm against this lockdown, don't tread on me, and that sort of thing. But I'm the most pissed off, and like my friends who That's know right. better, who know better and who claim to be being careful. And then you see this sort of things and you're like, what? In yeah, I don't know. I, I manage people as part of my job responsibilities. And sometimes I feel like I'm kind of in a bind because I'll see people that I might manage doing things that I disagree with. And I think to myself, how am I supposed to react to this? That's really interesting that the sort of because you've, you've got to be really careful. You don't want to let your personal judgment as correct as it is. <laughs> right. Become an employment issue. Right. 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 But, and it's so and the lines are so blurred yeah, because like, people are bored. So they're just sharing everything. So, yeah, Lee, I'm totally with you. It's one thing if you see that it's a political statement. I'm probably one of the few people who still allows people with whom I might very strongly disagree with politically as part of my Facebook and social media world. I see some of that quite often on a daily basis. The issue is really the people that I respect and that I love and who I've been excited to get back together with, which is what our caller was talking about. What do you do with those fractured relationships? Is there a moral failing that's being revealed here that sort of now we have to contend with even after the fact? 
Is yes. that is that the issue? Yes. I mean, I I think I was I've really been sort of racking my brain about this. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways to answer this question. But when we were talking about freedom in Sartre, I mean, one of the flaws in his conception of freedom is it leans towards libertarianism. That so long as you're not actively harming others, you're pretty much free to do whatever you want, and therefore the, there's not really a strong sense of social responsibility. And I was thinking instead that you know, as I was trying to like answer the exact question to myself that you just asked, Ammon, is I think Beauvoir at least gives us some tools to be able to show how it's a moral failing because it's a very simple argument. My freedom requires the freedom of others to carry it forward. So my freedom is increased by other people's freedom. And if I am deliberately doing something like refusing to wear a mask, refusing to socially distance, actually being antagonistic to those people who are doing these things, it's actually, I think at the most base level, unethical because you are knowingly and willingly doing something that will harm the freedom of others. Yeah. So can I give you a specific example here that I, so this one, and I'm going to apologize, Lee, this one was probably more for Shannon and I. So I'm friends with a lot of people who have, and these are against people in our political world, let's say, who have rightly pointed out that if we had handled the pandemic better, it would have been possible to have schools be open for children. And who have also rightly pointed out the fact that we have not been able to do this has disproportionately harmed the ability, especially of mothers, to continue to engage fully in the workforce. Breach. Uh, which I'm, to be clear, I'm entirely on board with. The inference that they make that I think gets to this question of freedom that I wonder about is given the fact that that's not the world we live in, I've still been a big supporter of schools being virtually, which might to be clear, my kids' school, it was an option to be virtual, which uh, until very recently they did. Um, at, and very difficult for them, right? Because virtual school, let's be honest, sucks. Oh, it's right? just terrible. <laughs> but but my, but our judgment was like, you know, this it, is not just about their well-being. Given that we're not in this ideal world, we have to deal with the reality that it's not safe to open the schools in the way that we can. And I've seen a lot of people who I respect who have focused on these, let's say, these more ideal conditions as an argument that schools should already have been open. And, it, it, you know, exactly to your point, Shannon, about this sort of like flourishing, it seems to me that that ignores the, the concrete conditions under which freedom in the world that we inhabit actually can or cannot take place. And I agree, it's a wrenching question. I mean, it's it's one that's been I mean, very but that's, that's, that's kind of bizarre. I haven't heard that argument. So you're saying you've heard the argument that since we should have handled it better, then schools should have been open sooner because the failure was that? Well, because that piece can be abstracted from all the other pieces, as I think. Oh, interesting. It, right? Yeah, that's I, just a bad argument. Yeah, I agree. That's a, that's a terrible <laughs> argument. I mean, the one that I've heard that I have had to grapple with myself is at a certain point balancing mental and physical well-being. And I think mental well-being has gone down for a great deal of people during this. Yeah. And so how do you mitigate that? And even that I don't think is an easy answer, nor do I think that that means we should reopen schools if it's not safe. But at least I feel like it deals more with a moral yeah. question. Let me put, so let me put, I think the question is, is, and this is where I was thinking about in the context of your point about freedom, right? The question has to do, I think, with the concrete conditions under which freedom is realized. I think that there's this argument to be made that if we look at one piece, like should we open schools? Should we keep 
grocery stores open? Should we open bars? Which again, the answer to that is no. If you abstract that question from all the concrete relationships in a society, you can always make the case for opening one thing. Yes. Right? Yeah. Again, like I'm not saying that opening bars and opening schools are have the same equal weight, right? Like, but but you can always make this case. But the problem is, is that when you start to talk about the flourishing of whole social groups, this sort of web of social relationships can't be abstracted. You know, so I can't talk about my freedom to do X without talking about this whole range of social relationships. Yeah. It also raises the the question of having to make some sort of utilitarian judgment of the greater good. So what is an allowable harm, mm-hmm. right, to happen by X staying open and X closing? One of the problems that became crystal clear to me in the last year was that we are so unaccustomed to thinking about ourselves as a group and thinking about our personal well-being as subordinate to the well-being of the whole that it forced a lot of these problems on us because you know a lot of things could have been open right like we could have done restaurants we could have done schools if we trusted everyone to understand that they needed to operate only in such a way that the well-being of the group was more important than the well-being of any particular patron or customer. And because that's just such foreign behavior to Americans, that instead what had to happen was that we had to have these federal lockdowns, federal mandates, which of course gets everyone's, you know, Pennies in a wad. I don't know. Can we say that? I saw. I saw you pausing. I think. I think you can say that. <laughs> I think you can say it. There were a lot of wadded pennies about this because the the thing was is because you just assumed that look that I know there are people out there who are not going to be following the rules. So either you say we need these hard lockdowns that are in most cases excessive, right? Like just. Mm-hmm looking at them objectively, scientifically, in most cases were more severe than they needed to actually be. But then that just exacerbates the problem. It just, again, makes people focus on themselves as individuals. I mean, we'd have to undo 350 years of American history to sort of undo that as a cultural disposition. But it is, you know, it is the problem. I mean, I, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that I think that It's hard for me sometimes when I'm talking to my friends, more conservative friends, friends on the right, there is some truth to what they're saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, that That, that's right. And it is something that is important to acknowledge because you, you don't want to gaslight people. But the conversation is so much more complex than could we have open schools sooner or could we have had 75% capacity restaurants instead of 25% capacity restaurants. Well, it's also exacerbated by the fact that we're so politically divided, even state by state. We're all in red Mm -hmm. states, and that's a very different kind of ethical understanding about individual versus community rights and obligations than you get in maybe more liberal blue states. And I'm not saying it's that easy to parse out, but it's really obvious that the emphasis lies more on individual and familial rights than it does on community obligation. 
Yeah, and I also want to bring up something that I know is going to cause some panties to wad again, but <laughs> let's not forget that at the beginning, and I'm saying this because the three of us all live in, as you say, red states. Let's not forget that near the very beginning of the lockdowns, a lot of the objection to federal or state level lockdowns was that people couldn't go to church, right? Yeah. And it became this thing. It became this weird anti-religion thing. And a lot of the resistance to basic public safety measures, public health measures came from the pulpits. And that to me is the greatest moral fate, like obvious moral failing. I was really frustrated because it seems like the pulpit was such a place where this could have been promoted. The safety, yes, the yes. distancing, the mask wearing, yes. the don't make this a political issue. It could have just inserted itself right there at the beginning. And there yeah, could have been a like strong you, leadership. Yeah, like you are your brother's keeper. That yes. is the, you know, like how was that not... Do unto others. Every, right. How is that not like the message every yeah. Sunday on Zoom? Why was it not that? Yep. That's a, I agree with the fact that it's particularly bad in states where individual rights are particularly valued. I'm not sure, though, that there's anywhere in America where that's not largely the case. I do think I saw a lot of folks, even sort of safer blue states, for whom one of the issues was back to exposure. States where there was enough of a social safety net in place, which there should have been everywhere that individuals could individually make the choice to socially distance. But there still wasn't this sort of like broad-based communal thinking. Right? Yeah, I like, think that's right. I think that's right. I don't think that any Americans, I remember I listened to this parenting podcast and the parents on it are all sort of like the most sort of PMC Warren Democrats you'll ever meet. And they were all talking very early on about how they were forming pods well before that was allowed on the basis of the fact that they had the social resources to do so largely safely, which I don't disagree with, but which reflected such a misunderstanding of the position of the upper middle class in the whole, and my kid's school, the same thing. My kid's school was the first school district in the area to open. And it's entirely because they knew that as a relatively wealthy school, they could put into place certain social distancing measures that poor schools didn't, and they didn't think they had an obligation to care about it. And I think that's writ large in the blue state, red state thing to a certain degree, too. I also want to say that, and I know that this won't be a lesson that we carry forward, unfortunately, but it could not have been made more obvious to everyone in this country over the last year that we are capable of providing those social safety nets. That's Absolutely. Right. The money is there, right? Yes. Um, if, you know, if we have to do it, we will do it. I mean, not only did we see that, look, we can actually for example, give everyone access to free medical care that they need. We can do that. We can give uh, a lot more financial assistance to school districts, to local municipalities, to public safety measures, to unemployment benefits. You know, people will forget that we could do that. We'll go right back to saying we can't afford these social, social safety nets. But they'll also ignore the fact that simultaneously, while we were taking care of everyone, we also made the very wealthiest people in this country wealthier. Whenever the first stimulus bill was passed, which was several billion. That, right? one, was, yeah. that one was a couple trillion. The, no, no, the, no. It, only the last two were trillions in the trillions. 
Mm-hmm. And I remember listening to interviews with senators saying, we've literally never passed anything like this. This is so much money. It's unprecedented. And then the next one is whatever it was, $1.8 trillion. Mm. And you have to think like just the regular person living in Wichita, sorry, Wichita. I mean, I mean you know, just middle of America. How is just the regular person not like, where was all this money? Where has this all been and why hasn't it been going towards exactly these kinds of things that we need? And that's only if you don't pay attention to the fact that the vast majority of that money went to shore up the already very wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. And I I, I think it's a really interesting question. What is it that we saw we were able to do? that we're going to forget the second that this is over. And you just raise so many important points about our ability to share wealth and social security and provide social nets, and also our ability to generate obscene amounts of wealth for the people who clearly don't need it. But there's also other things that we're going to forget. I mean, hopefully we won't, but we're going to forget that, you know what, it's possible to make all kinds of accommodations for people. It's possible to make accommodations for people who are sick, for people who aren't able to physically go to certain spaces, for people who are caring for elderly parents or for young children. And that it's not only possible, it's easy to do now. And And we're going to forget that this has been a very profound year of environmental lessenings of pollution Mm -hmm. and not medical waste. We actually have an increase in medical waste because there's masks everywhere, but noise pollution, air pollution, water pollution, all of that went down. We're going to forget that most of those meetings could have been an email. Most of those meetings could have been a tweet. (laughs) (laughs) Most of those meetings didn't even need to be an email, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to forget that people don't have to go to work sick. We're going to forget that we don't need to consume as many things as we think that we, we don't need. need to drive as uh, much as we drive. We I don't. Also, to- I also want to just uh, shout out uh, another person who answered the questions that we set forth for this episode on my Facebook page. One of my friends, Thea Wallace, who said what she hopes never returns after COVID is FOMO fear of missing out. She's oh, like, that's oh, great. That's yeah. so good. She's like, you know what? You just miss things and the world goes on and you're fine. And that is such a great answer to that question. Right? That is a good answer like, to that question. So one thing that seems kind of obvious for us to talk about since we're all professors is what our experience has been like teaching this last semester. As you know, I've been completely remote since last March. And I will say that it's been a kind of serendipitous event for me. I think that I spent a lot of time making really quality online content. And I feel like it's going to be very useful going forward. I mean, I miss the classroom. I want to be back in a physical classroom so badly. I can't stand it. But I do think that I'm very glad to now have this experience. So, for example, in the future, when I have to go to a conference or if I get sick, I don't have to rearrange my entire syllabus. I can just say, all right, these classes, I've already got content for you to do virtually or remotely or whatever. So I think that this has actually been really good for me anyway, pedagogically over the last year. I I am not one of the people who think that online classrooms are so inferior to in-person classrooms. I think there's a lot, once you get used to it and once you learn it, you can get just as good of conversation and interaction 
online as you can in a classroom. So I'm actually just devastated not being in the classroom. I can feel it as like a psychological hole in my heart. I mean, I think probably all of us love it. And so yeah. we may be feeling that. Yeah. Um, and, and so that I think psychologically has been the most difficult thing for me is that I didn't fully realize how much I got from the physical experience of a shared space of a classroom. And so that's been, I think, personally really hard. I will say I feel an enormous amount of gratitude that this happened at this time in history so that we actually could take classes online and we actually could do these mm -hmm. on Zoom. And when you know the announcement happened last March and I was crying in my class and my students were all freaked out and the fact that I could still you know, see them and we could still talk to each other. We could still have a class together that that made a world of difference to me. And I am planning on going back on campus in the fall, but I'm going to be doing two sections of a class and one I'm going to be doing on campus and one I'm going to be still doing a live stream. And I actually, this has really opened my eyes as far as the possibilities of this, because we really can serve more students this way. At my school, we have a ton of working students, parents, non-traditional age students, and people now have options that I personally never gave them before. I was all classes in the classroom, and now I feel very competent and comfortable doing a Canvas live stream class. I can't do what you do, Lee, because you make those amazing videos. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not going that direction, but I do feel like I can give a quality class in a Zoom format, which is going to end up, I think, really helping a lot of my students. So now is my confession of survivor's guilt because <laughs> here, okay, so oh, no. last spring I was doing administrative projects that gave me teaching leave. So I actually wasn't teaching last spring. And then in the fall, I was on parental leave for two little adorable baby girls, which meant I wasn't teaching. So I did not teach at all last year. And so I feel like I missed our generation's like teaching hell. Um, <laughs> yes, you did. You did. Yeah. Let us just share trauma is not yours to share. Let, let That's us right. confirm yeah. for you that you did in fact miss out on. I'm teaching in person now. And it's the thing, Shannon, that you're talking about where actually, so the way that they've arranged it is that I do teach in person, but my students don't have to be in person. And so a lot of days in my 25 person class, which would have normally been a 45 person class, there are three people in the classroom and everyone else is online. And it's been okay. Most of my friends, or a lot of my friends are philosophers, right? And other academics. And so I've been thinking, I'd spent the year that I wasn't teaching, thinking about how I wanted to teach under these circumstances. And I think the thing that I've been really grateful for, so, you know, despite the survivor's guilt, like my life has been hard in a lot of ways as all of ours has. I've had a lot of young kids at home, which has made other things difficult. And I think that my students and I are much more compassionate to one another. Like I rearranged my grading. I took the time off to rearrange how I grade. I've never liked punitive grading, but this semester I'm trying an approach that sort of has no punitiveness built into it. And I've tried to be honest with my students about where I'm struggling. And I am incredibly grateful. I love, I think this new generation of students is, I don't love generational stuff, but like I think this new generation of students is amazing. I love I, uh, the way that they've interacted with me in this incredibly unreal time has been incredibly real. They're very generous. They care about yeah. us as much as we care about them. Yeah, which is great. Yeah. And that's how it should yeah. be. I definitely think that this pandemic has humanized the professor-student relationship. Right. 
in a lot of like non-creepy yeah. ways <laughs> that we really didn't have before. The sort of flip side of that, I will also say, is it has really made me realize how higher education institutions need to invest more in counseling, care, psychological uh, services. I feel like at least this was especially true last spring, but even into the fall that about 20% of my job became being a kind of personal counselor. Which is already um, a large part which, of our jobs. Yeah. <laughs> which is already a large part of our jobs. <laughs> Okay, so let's answer the questions that we put to our listeners. Eamon, I'm going to ask you first the exact same three questions that we asked our listeners, which were, what is something that you can't believe we did before COVID? What is something you can't wait to get back to? And what is something you hope we never get back to? Okay, so I, I cannot believe this gets, you know, talking about the TV thing. When I see people not wearing masks on TV, I cannot believe we all walk around with our mouth holes just like there for the world to see. <laughs> Blows me away. The next one is what I can't wait to get back to. Karaoke. That's going to be my answer to everything every episode. I miss karaoke so much. What I you know karaoke, karaoke involves a lot of open mouth holes, right? Yeah, but that it's it's for it's open, it's open mouth holes for a good reason, right? It's, it's, it's open mouth holes with, with thought behind them. And uh, what I hope we never get back to, I hope we never get back to pointless meetings. And I know we will. Yeah, for sure. Shannon, what about you? I can't believe, really, I can't believe that I personally and others would feel compelled to or forced to go to work sick. And I just can't believe now that we've had this time to sit back and realize how utterly devastating and wrong that is and how it's not that hard to deal with it. That's something I can't believe we did. I personally cannot wait to get back to Brewies where you get to go and order your nachos and have your beer and watch a movie. I mean, I miss movies so much already, yeah. but Brewies is the place to be. So I cannot wait to get back to Brewies. I hope that we never get back to this idea that, that it was all normal before this, that everything was fine and then this stupid pandemic came and disrupted everything. And now if we could only just get back to the way things were, I hope we just never think that way again. And we realize that so much was broken and our primary moral responsibility lies in fixing as much as we can as we move forward. What about you, Lee? Uh, well, there are actually so many of my own personal habits that I can't believe I did before COVID. I mean, I want to be honest, I didn't wash my hands all the time. Oh, I mean, no. I washed, I washed <laughs> them, you know, when I got out of the bathroom and things like that. But, you know, uh, but also like how I would eat off other people's plates or share drinks with them. Or, oh, I'm totally you know, doing but, that still. You know, yeah. <laughs> all of those I trust things you guys. <laughs> I, I sort of can't believe that I did before COVID now, I also honestly can't believe that I didn't wear a mask during flu season. I mean, it just seems like such an obvious thing to do. So yeah, those are the things that kind of really stand out to me. I cannot wait to get back to live music and bars. I mean, I think that it's never going to be quite exactly the same as it was. I think that it'll take me a long time to be able to shuffle around in a crowd and not feel weird about it, but I am excited. I miss live music so much the thing that i hope we never get back to i'm just going to go back to what my friend Thea said it had never occurred to me 
how much of my life was driven by FOMO. I think all three of us are very extroverted, hyper-social people. And for the first three or four months of COVID, I felt like I was going crazy because I wasn't going out or knowing that I was going out the next night or going to parties. And I just think, yeah, it's just fine to miss things. Like, you know, I don't, I don't have to be a part of everything and I don't have to worry about not being a part of everything. So this has been quite a a liberation from that just sort of low key anxiety. Do you think we'll have concerts like rock and roll concerts again? Rock and I think we dead. will, but do you think we'll have festivals? That's what I want. Oh, I hope not. We're like, oh, That's, no. I changed my answer. I want this to never go back to festivals. <laughs> no. Next week, we're going to talk about rankings and ratings. We're going to talk about why we often resort to them. We're going to talk about the places that they show up, both natural and that seem a little weird. And we're going to talk about what the algorithm is figuring out about us. That sounds awesome. I just want to say, as co-hosts, I give both of you five out of five stars. Always. Would listen again. (laughs) All right, recommend. (laughs) See you next time. See you later.